Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, you are good and you are holy. And you love us in a way that we can't comprehend and we certainly don't deserve. And I pray that, uh, that what we've just read here in Romans would be true, uh, not only of this local church, but of everyone who would call on your name and call themselves a follower of Christ Jesus. I pray that you would bless the words of Kevin this morning as he comes up to deliver a sermon on this passage. I pray that you would speak through him and that your spirit would open our minds, soften our hearts, and allow us to be challenged by what you have to say to us um, and, and put, a, put away any pretense we have that, that we can check this list off and show ourselves right and better than others, but have us come to you humbly, God, seeking correction, seeking reproof. All these things we ask in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, thank you guys for being here. I hope uh, finding your way into this building wasn't too difficult. As, uh, as still, I mean, we just celebrated being five years old as a church just uh, about, a, about a month and a half ago. Um, but there's still a lot of flux for us constantly. And so we're in a new building and we'll be in this building for the foreseeable future. Um, I want to take a minute just to pause and thank everyone who came out yesterday to help us um, move into this space. Seriously, thank you guys. Um, yeah, give them a hand. Um, they spent hours cleaning this space up, uh, getting things moved around, um, making sure that these chairs were zip tied together so the students that are here on Monday don't run off with them. Um, so um, a lot of exciting things. Installing these televisions so you guys could worship since we don't have hymnals uh, and just trying to get things set up. We still have some things to do that we'll be doing over the course of the next couple weeks and months, but um, we're excited to be here for the foreseeable future and appreciate you guys being here uh, with us. Um, if you guys are new, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. I see a lot of parents here to celebrate uh, your son or daughter's graduation today. Congratulations. It's a big deal. Uh, we're just as excited excited as you are, um, because if your kid is sticking around, maybe they'll actually be able to give to the church at this point, right? But in all seriousness, no, it's been a pleasure and a, a, an honor uh, to be able to pastor uh, your son or daughter over the last couple years, and we're excited uh, for what God has uh, for them in the next season of life. Um, if you could throw up just the community group slide real quick for me, I just want to make a quick announcement. Uh, community groups are taking a break this week. We're taking a, uh, a full break this week, and then they will start back up uh, the following week on Tuesday nights. Uh, just keep that one up there for me uh, really quickly. Um, the women will meet first, so um, not this upcoming Tuesday, but the following Tuesday, and that location is to be determined. It will either be right here in this location or um, at Lois's house, but we haven't decided for sure. And then men will be uh, at Brent's house, uh, which is, if you walk out the red door that you came in, if you came in on this side and just look across the street, you'll see Brent's home, and that's where we'll be the following week. Uh, and then you can throw the... the um, the Columbia one back up there too if we're having issues. Um, still trying to get our technical issues sorted out here. Uh, if, uh, if you're interested in December um, towards the um, end of uh, the f fall semester, we will be in Columbia. Um, and we're excited to be going in December this time around because every year you guys are probably aware if you've been around a while, we do our toy drive for Manos. And that toy drive will actually be there for the Christmas party 
that we have with, that they have every year. So they usually have anywhere between 100 to 200 kids show up to this Christmas party every December. A lot of them, it's the only Christmas gift they're going to get. Um, and their families come as well. And so we get a unique opportunity to share the gospel with them and to um, show them the love of Christ and, and give them a gift and have a party. And so we'll actually be down there for that party in December. And so that would be uh, December 7th to the 16th. And you can email um, Colombian, and that's Columbia with an O, not as in Columbia, South Carolina. We make that mistake a lot. But Hurricane at gmail.com. Mario is um, doing all the work for that. Uh, and so if you're interested, he can get you more information there as well. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 12. That's where we're going to be uh, this morning. And one of the things I was thinking about as I was preparing for uh, the sermon this week is, you know, we live in a time and an age, at least here in the United States, uh, where using the word love is a popular buzzword for our culture. If you, if you, if you know what I'm saying, like in, in the sense of it's a defining word for most of our culture to describe or define how we live. And what I mean by that, let me throw out a few of the marketing catchphrases that you'll hear, and they'll start, it'll start to ring a bell on what I'm saying, right? You ever heard, um, well, through this last election cycle, right, love trumps hate, right? And they were playing on uh, one side, of, one political ideology was playing on, their, playing on their dislike of the other political ideology. But what the, the, the statement behind that statement is saying this, Right, that showing love is the ultimate expression or cultural value that we hold to. That's what they're saying, that, hey, love always wins. Love trumps hate. Now, coincidentally, those making this type of statement are actually showing that if someone holds to a political ideology different than their own, they are somehow inherently evil right? Remember that our words matter. And so no matter where you stand on the political spectrum, making a statement like that puts the other side into a box by your definition, right? How about this one, right? You ever heard this one? Love is love is love. Okay, there's no definition there. What in the world does that even mean, right? You've used the word to define the word. If I remember in my elementary school language arts class, that was wrong. You weren't allowed to do that. But that's a popular, right, buzz statement in our culture right now, right? It's not about any sort of standards, but a choice in who you want to show your affections to in a relationship. And as long as you are receiving the affection you want, love is being accomplished. That's basically the, the way you can follow that statement. Um, how about this one, right? Popular by Ziggy Marley, right? Love is my religion, Right? Popular, especially amongst you college students. I know you've heard that one because it's everywhere. I've seen big banners on the campus with it saying that, right? And I'm going to read to you right, part of Ziggy Marley's lyrics from that song that popularized that statement, right? All my days, I've been searching to find out what this life is worth. Through the books and Bibles of time, I've made up my mind. I don't condemn. I don't convert. Yeah, this is a calling. Have you heard? Bring all the lovers to the phone because no one is going to lose their soul. Hey, love is my religion. Right? Basically saying, I choose to accept everything as true and good. That is what love is and that is my religion. Unless, of course, your worldview opposes that worldview, then you're shunned from worshiping with Ziggy. Right? Even the Beatles... Right? have this famous song that many of you probably have heard who are younger in the room and don't know that it was originally done by the Beatles. Right? But it goes like this. All you need is love. Love. Love is all you need. There's nothing you can know that isn't known. Nothing you can see that isn't shown. There's nowhere you can be that isn't where you're meant to be. By the way, this is, doesn't make any sense, by the way. If you're confused, it's okay. This, doesn't, this line doesn't make any sense. It's easy. All you need is love. Meaning, you can't really know everything or anything, so just accept everything. By the way, just so we make this clear, I've said this before. If you take these definitions of love and truth to their logical conclusions, there's no longer a need for universities and education. 
Because we're saying there's no longer truth, there's no longer values, there's no longer morals, there's no longer things for us to follow and standards to believe in. So my, the question we raise then is this, is this really love? Right? Is the way our culture defines relating with one another and loving one another, is this really what you and I were designed for? Is this really what God's intention is? Because the way we answer that question is going to profoundly shape our worldview and how we interact with the world around us. Right, last week we looked at Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 was kind of the, the beginning of what we were focusing in on. Right? And look at what he says there. In verses 1 and 2 he says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Right? He says, I appeal to you in light of God's mercy towards the human race. Live this way. And then he begins to share how he wants us to use the spiritual gifts that he gives every Christian. That's what verses 3 through um, 8 really talk about is in light of God's mercy towards his creation, live in such a way using the gifts that God has given you, given you, given you, that's not a word, giving love using these gifts. That's what Paul is trying to share with us. And so this week, right, the verses that Derek read for us earlier, right, in our, on our time of reading the word together, these passages are a practical guide on how we exercise those gifts with one another and how to love one another well. So look at verse 9, right? Look at what, look at what Paul says there. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Now, Paul has already established back in verse 1 that the standard of our love is the way that God loved us, right? The mercy that God shows us in Christ. So when we get to verse 9, what Paul is going to be laying out for us is what it means to love those around us practically. All right, so he says there in verse 9, he lists three ways that we practically can display love for one another, right? He says there, let your love be genuine, right? That word genuine in the Greek is this word anhypocritas, which can be translated as where we get our word hypocritical or unhypocritical from. And, and what it means is, is being sincere. It means to not fake it. Right? He's saying, let your love for one another not be fake. Don't have a veneer on your actions that appear to be a certain way that aren't actually the way you truly feel about someone. And I, I think this is the, the church's issue worldwide, but especially in the U.S. I think I get asked frequently because we're a part of the Southern Baptist denomination. Some of you guys may or may not know that. I get asked frequently, hey, how, how are you guys... Uh, reaching out to young people and so many college students when most churches, the average age of someone in their church is over the age of 45, your church is literally the exact opposite of that. The average age of someone who goes to our church is 25. And, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation because they talk about their issue of maturity in the church as being a, a, a problem and not having any young people. And we complain about the opposite problem, right? We're always like, well, we just need some, some older, more mature believers to come alongside us and lift people up. But here's the thing, thank you, right? <laughs> but here's the thing, right? I say this all the time. The younger generation, right, many people grew up in the church, right? And one of the things that the, the, uh, the younger generation of college students that I see coming in, moving into this city every fall, right, one thing that is consistent amongst all of them, no matter what they believe, they want authenticity. And they can sniff out an inauthentic Christian community in a heartbeat. It right? doesn't matter if you have cool pyrotechnics at your church service with a, with a fog machine and all these different things. They will smell inauthenticity from a mile away. 
right? One of my own issues growing up with the church was the veneer that my church family put on every Sunday morning and then knowing those people in a small town throughout the week back home. And one time in particular, I remember my dad having a job and being demoted wrongly because of someone else within his own department gunning for his job. And we went away on vacation. When we came back, my dad was demoted because he didn't respond to an email before 10 a.m. when he got back from vacation. At least that was the excuse they used. And seeing the way that they treated my dad and talked to my dad and then walking into church on Sunday morning and having that person walk up to my dad and act like they were best friends. My dad may have faked it because he had played status quo there at that church for years. Guess how I felt? Angry, mad, and irritated. And it distorted my view of God because there wasn't a genuine authenticity to the relationships that existed within that church. And so Paul is pleading to the church at Rome, guys, be real with one another. Right? Don't give an appearance of fake love. Real love means saying the hard things and working through disagreements at times. And in the midst of those things, being kind and redemptive with a goal of reconciliation instead of a veneer of fake inauthenticity. Then he moves on to say this, abhor what is evil. Meaning that there is where the church should start to stray away from popular culture and using love to be one of your defining characteristics. Because popular culture on, is not identified or not defined well. Our effort to love others is not defined. And God says yes and amen to loving others, but he also says to hate what God hates and to push away and stand against that which is unholy and not good for us. He says that God has standards, and because God has standards, we are called to hold to them and press towards them and press those that stand against them to press that ideology away from the church. And this is why it goes hand in hand with what he says at the end of verse 9, to hold fast what is good. Meaning, if we are to press back against evil, we should also embrace what God defines as good and celebrate it and enjoy it and know that it's going to bring us lasting joy, that it's going to press us deeper into holiness and deeper into sanctification as we walk with Jesus. Right? Tim Keller puts it this way. God's law reveals the way in which our world and our souls were designed. To disobey God's law is always bad for the beloved. Therefore, real love is concerned about truth. Any love that is afraid to confront the beloved is not really love, but a selfish desire to be loved. Right? What he means by that is that if you won't tell somebody the truth, even if it's hard, you don't really love them. You're manipulating your relationship with them to receive love from them, but it's a fake, inauthentic love that's not really the type of love that God describes as true love. That it's a false idol or a false gospel that will give the appearance of being true but is not true in and of itself in the end. And will never lead to true, long-lasting love and reconciliation with one another. Right? So God's call to his church is that as we live as living sacrifices onto him in light of the mercy that he has shown us, that we are to love others. And to do so in such a way that honors his standard and is going to push people to holiness and more joy because his standard is good, right? And this then raises what I consider to be probably pretty good questions, right? If the, if the thesis that Paul is pushing on us in verse 9 is to love one another and love others well, the questions we, we're going to ask inevitably, at least these were questions I was asking, what about people I don't like? Right? What about, what about people who don't deserve love? Right? It's, it's easy to love the person that's kind to me, it's easy to love the person that I agree with on a political, ideological scale or from a worldview standpoint, but it's a lot harder to love the person that I completely disagree with on just about everything. For some of us in this town, it's easy to love the Gator fan. It's really hard to love the Seminole, right? 
And yet, right, God calls us to a higher standard. And that's what we'll spend the rest of the morning addressing. Right, look at verses 10 through 16 with me. Right, starting in verse 10. Right, we're going to kind of work through these in bullet point form because Paul lists out practical ways that we press into love both in the church and outside the church. Right, look at verse 10. First one he says there, love one another with brotherly affection. Right, what he means by this is live as if those within your church community are your blood relatives. Live with them as if they are family, that relationships within the body of Christ are meant to be relationships like a family, right? That is why Paul and others throughout the New Testament use terminology like calling us brothers and sisters. Okay, and here, here's, here's what this means practically, because I think, right, we've got some different generations in here, and so this is going to mean different things to different generations, right? The way that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ practically looks different and is going to challenge us in different ways. But let's start with this, right? For you college students in the room, you younger people in the room, right? Practically, here's what this means. You should be able to carry out a relationship with the opposite gender without an immediate assumption of romantic interest. Okay, there's one clap, right? Okay, but this is so, college students, I love you guys. You suck at this. You do, right? Because every event I'm ever at with Christian college students is awkward if there are multiple genders there. It's like the middle school dance. What do we do? Okay, it's easy. Guys, that girl is your sister. I sure hope you don't have romantic interest in your blood sister. Now, I am not saying that at some point you will not develop romantic interest for him or her. But your initial response should be to get to know them and love them and protect them and care for them and want God's best for them the same way you would a blood relative. Guys, if your concern is for them spiritually and their good in Christ, that is going to eliminate the awkwardness. I can promise you that. Right? Another, another thing we should expect, right? and this, this is going to extend to everybody, is practically we should expect to not always agree and get along perfectly with one another. When the church is multi-generational, multi-ethnic, there are going to be some disagreements and misunderstandings, the same way there were in my own family growing up. And instead of running and hiding or getting mad and throwing a temper tantrum when things aren't homogenous and aren't going well, the call of Christ is that we press into that difficulty and reconcile those differences in a way that sees restoration of the relationship and a deeper love for one another. Right? This means we have tough conversations, but we do so in a way that is winsome. The last one I put here is that we should demand of each other as a church that we would always forgive and love one another well and do what it takes when it is hard and requires reconciliation. This means if you're offended by somebody, you tell them. This means that if someone apologizes to you and wants to walk in a posture of repentance when they have sinned against you, that you would accept that and walk that out with them. One of the things that makes relationships so difficult is that as a culture, everything is instantly gratified for us now. With Netflix, I don't even have to watch commercials anymore. Thank you, Derek. If I want something to eat, I can pop it in a microwave. If I'm really lazy, I can call someone on a telephone and have them bring it to me. Right? That we live in a season and an age of instant gratification for everything, but relationships do not work that way. And that as we press into them, they take time to develop, but as they take time to develop, they deepen and strengthen as we are free to forgive one another because Christ first forgave us. 
that we are able to model, right, what godly relationships look like because of what God first did towards us, right? So practically, right, we show brotherly affection for us. That's the first thing Paul mentions there. But then in the second part of verse 10, look at what he says. He says, outdo one another in showing honor, right? One of the few times that God tells us be competitive, right? He says, be competitive with one another in showing deference to others and loving them well, right? One of my favorite passages in all of scripture is Philippians chapter two. And in Philippians chapter two, right, one of the themes of the church that I came out of when I was in college was we would just call it like a cultural value of our church. We, we called it rocking Philippians two, right? And what we meant by that is that you cared more about the person next to you and their interests and what was going on in their life than your own. I tell people all the time, one of the reasons this church exists is we didn't know anybody when we moved here, and we just went out and met people. And people would always be like, how, isn't that, isn't that hard? Nope, because I just ask people questions about themselves, and guess what everyone's favorite topic is? Themselves. More than sports, right, more than, the, more than education, right, more than books, right, more than music, all those things are cultural things that people love, but all those things are really just things that people gravitate towards that are centered around them and their personalities and their likes and their interests. Everyone's favorite topic is themselves. You can become the greatest communicator and relational person on the planet if you just ask other people questions about themselves. And what you'll notice too is if you start doing that, other people will start reflexively doing that back. And what we see here is that Paul says to love one another well is to have a genuine interest in other people and showing them honor, caring about them. Then in verses 11 and 12, look what he says. He says, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation and be constant in in prayer. So his next call for love within the church could be summed up by saying be patient and persevere. Right? Do not be slothful in zeal. Care and strive to love others well. Make it a priority. Make spending time with other people and getting to know them and loving them and living life together a priority. Be fervent in spirit, meaning care about what God cares about and hold one another as a church to that standard. Rejoice in hope that you assume the best of somebody and strive to display that you are hopeful for them. Be patient in tribulation. Here's what Paul's saying there, guys. Hardships will come. Don't spend them complaining, but strive with one another towards finding your hope and joy in God. Right? We, we as Americans, tend, tend to manufacture our lives to avoid stress and discomfort as much as possible. Paul says that in that, as a church, you should strive to understand that hardships are still gonna come and walk through those things together. And then lastly, I love that he finishes with this in verse 12. He says, be constant in prayer. What he's saying is, you need God. None of this is possible without him. Prayer, by definition, is admitting your own neediness. You are petitioning to the creator of the universe your need for him and your need for him to move and act. Now, when he gets to verses 13 through 16, he's going to talk about placing these principles into action. Look at what he says. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So he says, place that love into action, and here's how. Contribute to the needs of the saints and show them hospitality. Right? Make food for people. College students, we do this for you all the time. Right? Some of you come here because we feed you. Right? Contribute to the need, the neediness of others and meet those needs as you are able. Right? Bless those who persecute you. Right? Here's a practical way you can bless someone who is, is not maybe uh, your biggest fan within the body of Christ. 
want God's best for them and celebrate with them and make it visible. Right? Show and display to them that you're excited for them when they are seeing great stuff happen in their life. Right? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Life is hard. Celebrate with those who are celebrating. So, guys, some of the best witness to the gospel I've ever seen is from women who struggle with infertility and yet will throw baby showers for those that they have that are friends within the body of Christ. Guys, if, that is a testimony to finding your joy in Christ and loving others. Right? The, seeing single men and women throw bachelor parties and bachelorette parties and wedding showers to celebrate people who are getting married when they desperately want to be single. Right? Cele celebrating, right, births of children when you've just lost someone close in your life, right? Those are ways that we love one another well practically and display love within the body of Christ, right? This is the call that Paul is, call, is the call that Paul is making to us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, meaning not everything is gonna be perfect all the time, but another thing that we need to remember, and I, I feel like this maybe may pertain more to our church in particular, not everything is an idol. Sometimes, right, we just need to know that something can be sad and we can weep with someone over that sadness. Right? If someone is, is sad over the loss of something or something not working out the way that it may be, we can press into that and find out why it's so disheartening. But we can also just weep together and be saddened over the fact that God has decided that opportunity is not going to come about. That blessing is not coming. Let's weep and then press into him and find out what he might have for us. And as he says all of this, he says, live in harmony and do not be haughty, meaning be humble and be practical about being humble. And so he says, in this, in this way, if we follow these principles we honor God and display his love to others. Fulfilling what Christ asked us to do in John chapter 13, right? Let's turn over there real quick. I wanna, I wanna read that aloud so we get the full weight of what Paul, I mean, excuse me, what Jesus says there in the, in the gospel of John. Starting in verse 34, he says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Right, what Jesus is saying there is the love that the church will show for one another and doing these things practically that Paul talks about in Romans 12 will show, hey, that's a real church. That's a real group of men and women who have decided to follow Jesus and be his disciples and that their love for one another is the, the measuring stick by knowing whether or not that church really loves God or not. Doing those things that we see in Romans chapter 12, that doing and displaying those things will show a sincere and genuine love for one another but also for God. Because it goes against our natural instinct to do a lot of these things. For many of us, our natural instinct is to love, but love selfishly. And the, the call of Christ is to love, but love selflessly. And in that, we make much of him. The church is known by a sincere love for one another. Now, Paul shifts starting in verse 17 from love within the body of Christ to loving those outside the body of Christ. Look at what he says in verses 17 through 21. He says, Repay no one evil for, for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by, doing, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not 
be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Paul makes an assertion here in these verses that in dealing with those outside of our church family, and sometimes even within it, but especially outside our church family, there's going to often be some associated hostility. There's going to be times where we're not going to understand one another, we're not going to agree, we're not going to get along. Specifically in verses 17 and 21, right, where he says two separate ways in which we confront what he calls evil. He says, do not repay anyone for evil, and do not be overcome by evil. Now, that word overcome there, I, I, I found to be especially interesting when I was studying this past week. Right? It means to conquer or subdue. It's a military term. And so Paul is saying that we have a propensity to react when wronged or when treated unfairly to respond to that evil with evil. To actually be overcome by it, meaning we are unable to control ourselves because we give in to being so offended and so, so wrong and hurt that we feel the only thing that we can and should do is to repay those actions with similar actions. To repay that evil with what we were, with the way we were treated. And doing so leads to losing the battle for love. It means we ultimately lose relationships and lose the ability to witness to that person what God has done in our lives. We may feel better in the moment to respond to hardship or hurt. We may feel better to respond in the way that they treated us and it may feel like a win, but ultimately we lose. I try to teach this to my kid as he's, as he's getting older. Right? My, my, my oldest, Gideon, loves games. Board games, uh, sporting games. He's, and he's got a mix between Jackie and I, because I don't really like board games that much. I just kind of do them as, a, as a, a social thing. Maybe it's because I'm so competitive. But Gideon got both my competitiveness and Jackie's love for games. And a couple weeks ago, we caught him cheating. Right, he set the board up, and we walked back, and we realized he had gone through and set the cards up in the deck to come to the ones that he wanted to come to him. And my sister was playing with him, and at the end, she's like, dude, this is awfully fishy. Now, here's the thing. He's six. And, you know, we believe that he actually does love the Lord. He's made a profession of faith all the time. So, so he's, he's talking, my sister's talking with him, and she's like, you know, what's going on? And he confessed that he cheated. And, and one of the interesting things is in having that conversation with him working through him, was like, did that feel as fun to you winning but knowing that you didn't win honorably? And he's like, no. And I was like, you know, your sister's up, your sister, your, your aunt is upset that you did this. And it wasn't very fun for her because you wronged her. Right, you cheated. That sometimes, right, we think the ends justify the means. Right, winning, winning by any means necessary. Or, right, getting back and making my point across that you hurt me in our relationship. Doesn't matter how I display that to you. I just need you to know that what you did was wrong. And so we'll repay evil for evil, right? One of the things I remember in, in high school and college is... Lance Armstrong was the like, biggest, one of the biggest athletes in the United States at the time. Right? No one cared about cycling before then. Then you turn on sports news, and all of a sudden it's like, look at Lance Armstrong, he's going to win a seventh time. Right? Now, what did we find out five years later? He cheated. Do we care about cycling? Nope, we don't care about him either. Because right? it was a mirage. Right? He, at the time, he thought the, the ends justified the means, but they didn't. Right? The way that we are called to deal with being wronged by someone is to pursue them and do good to them that they do not deserve. And this is a hard call as a Christian, but a necessary one. Now, practically, right, Paul calls us to step into that space by saying, when you have been wronged 
instead of running from the relationship or pressing back and repaying with them evil, I want you to step into that space and allow yourself to be hurt, but overcome that hurt with good. Here is how that practically looks. Right? He says in verse 18, live at peace with them, meaning don't stir up any more strife. Speak to them in truth. Speak to that hurt, but do not avoid them. That's what we're really good at. If someone's really offended us, but we don't want to repay their evil with evil, but we don't know how to address the hurt that they've caused us, we just disconnect. Right? We, we, we say a line that is fundamentally untrue. Time heals all wounds. No. Time puts a Band-Aid over a bullet wound. And eventually, guess what? I'm not a doctor, but I don't think that wound's going to heal itself. And eventually what inevitably ends up happening is that someone gets hurt again, and guess what happens? That wound gets reopened, and because it was never surgically dealt with, it gets deeper, and it gets harder, right? Unless we press into them peacefully to reconcile. He says in verse 19 that not only do we live at peace with them as much as is possible with us, but that we also trust God and press into him for that reconciliation. Do not exercise revenge, but trust God to take care of that. This means that I I don't need to punish somebody because ultimately I believe enough in the sovereignty of God that he's going to discipline that person. I don't need to play God, God will play God, right? I do this with my kids, right? Josiah will be acting out and Gideon swoops in, don't do that, and Neville, by the way, ends up in a huge fight because Josiah just, well, he's a three-nager anyway right now, but he screams because having his brother tell him no is way worse than having mom and dad tell him no, right? Guess what? You are not someone else's God and you don't get to play that role. Instead, trust in your God to act and move. And then lastly, he says this in verse 20, practically show your love and forgiveness towards them, that you meet their needs. You would try to support and help them. This actually will reveal to them, according to Paul, their sinfulness. That if you love somebody well when they have mistreated you, it will actually call them to repentance. And if you don't believe me, ask any married couple where the husband or the wife has wronged the other and the other spouse chooses to love them and treat them well when they don't deserve it, it works. The amount of times that I have wrongly treated my wife and she's loved me well in the midst of that is the greatest call to repentance I ever receive. Right? When Jackie loves me well and I know I don't deserve it, it inevitably presses me towards God and inevitably presses me to repentance. This is what Paul is talking about here. Now, I said earlier that we would talk about how all of this is possible, right? Because this, this section is incredibly practical, right? And I mentioned last week that everything from here on out in the book of Romans is, is really, really great practical information and yet really, really difficult because we have to fight against the propensity to just read that list and then just say, I'm gonna resolve to do these things and I'm gonna do them really well and become a bunch of little walking around like functional Pharisees in 2018. And so the answer to how you and I live out what we're seeing here practically in Romans 12 is to go back to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Let me, read them to you. Let me read those two verses to you again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We go about loving one another within this church and outside of this church in light of the mercy 
of God towards us. Here's what that means practically, right? And you hear me say this frequently from, from up front. This means practically you apply the gospel to your life. It means that by actively repenting of your own sinfulness and rebellion towards God, you are made to realize how unworthy you are of God's love, and yet he chose to love you anyway. Not because you are lovely and worthy of love, but because he chose to make you lovely. Guys, that's the good news of what God has done for us. God looked at me, he looked at you, and he said, you are unworthy of love, and yet I choose to love you anyway. I deem you lovely. And in understanding how unworthy you are of God's love, and yet he chooses to love you anyway, you respond to that measure of love to others. Yes, the person sitting next to you right now is probably not worthy of your love. But you can choose to love them anyway because God first chose to love you. The person in your class that you work next to at your cubicle, that you deal with over the phone, that your neighbor who is unloving and harsh, you can reflect Christ's love to them because God first loved you and displayed that mercy to you. God demonstrates patience, forgiveness, mercy, and reconciliation so that we know that he is love. Let's press into that mercy. But it starts with knowing him. If you're here this morning and you aren't a Christian, and then you're sitting here and you're, hearing me talk about Romans 12 and I'm like, I want to display those things. I'm telling you right now that it is impossible for you to consistently reflect that type of love without first knowing Jesus as your Savior and as your King. It's impossible. You can do it for a season, but you will not see long-lasting change. But in knowing that God loved you so much that he sent his only son to die in your place on the cross. And in that death, he took on the wrath of God, which was the full payment for your rebellion towards God. And in taking on that payment, he offers you his good standing with the Father so that you might be adopted as a son or daughter of God. That's true love. That in our rebellion and refusal to want to have a relationship with God, he pursued us anyway. These people say, how do I know God pursued me? Jesus came. You don't need some sort of special revelation from the heavens you don't need a text message or an email from God saying, I love you. The Bible tells us God loves us. It tells us that God loves us and demonstrated that love in Christ. And that in that love, we can find all the hope, peace, acceptance, love, and joy that we could ever need. And out of that love, we love others. Nothing will ever properly motivate you to love the way even our culture wants to define love other than Christ. Because God is the standard. We're going to take communion here in just a minute. We take communion every Sunday here. And as I remind you guys every week, taking communion is a time, one, to reflect on your own worthiness. Right, your sinfulness, and to confess that unworthiness to God, but then to come up here and joyfully take in the bread and the juice because God poured out his flesh and blood for you. It's an opportunity not to be sorrowful, but to be joyful because the price for your sin has been paid in full. Jesus paid for your sin, past, present, and future on the cross. And in that, you can walk up here and you can take communion and you can joyfully 
worship him for what he has done. And then you can return to your seat, right? Resolving to press into that love and worship him. And out of that worship, love others well the way that Paul calls us to in Romans 12. If you're not a Christian here this morning, thank you for being here. We love you. We're glad you're here. I would ask that you not take communion because communion for a Christian represents something sacred and special. And the Bible says that if you're not a follower of Christ, you're actually heaping up judgment on yourself by taking communion without actually being a follower of Jesus. What you're saying is, is when we come up here and we take communion, we're saying that what happened to Jesus on the cross was supposed to happen to me, and yet Jesus took that on for me. If you're not a Christian, you're basically saying, God, make this happen to me. I deserve this. So I'd ask that you not take communion, but I would, instead I would invite you to think about your life. Do you live by the standard that you would even set for yourself, much less the one that God would set for us? If not, how will you pay for that? I would submit to you that the only way that can be paid for is by the blood of Christ. And God joyfully did that for you. Come to him, repent of your sin, and trust in Christ as your Savior and King. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you define love for us. Because we would be quick, as we see in culture and society, to do so in a way that is not your standard. Father, help us to love others in a way that will display your glory and the reality of what you have done for us. Father, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us for not loving others well and thank you that knowing that in that failure your mercies are new each and every day. As you say in, in Romans 12, 1, that we, we live this way in light of your mercy, not to earn your mercy, that your mercy was first granted and then we respond. May we respond to that grace by living unto you. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.